0: Are you sick and tired of other people knowing more than you just because they actually studied the area? Are you annoyed that human knowledge is vast and you can only obtain expertise in the tiniest pinprick of it in the limited time that you are on this earth? We have the product for you. Debate Me Cowards is a 12-step guide to finding your way to truth and happiness. The first pages walk you through the complicated process of how to set up a Twitter account, and it only gets better from there. Debate Me Cowards, order now for truth and happiness. First 100 orders, get a free podcast mic.
1: (laughs) Perfect. That was perfect.
0: Hello, and welcome to Moderated Content's weekly, slightly random, and not at all comprehensive news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Duick, and Alex Stamos. Uh, The big story this week is uh, probably the strike and blackout at Reddit by many volunteer moderators uh, after the company announced that it was going to start charging for access to its API back in April. So, at the time of recording on Sunday afternoon, there are still around 4,000 or so subreddits that have gone into private mode in in protest of Reddit's decision. according to reddark.untone.uk, which has been set up by people who are tracking this. This is, you know, uh, it's been playing out over the last week. There's been lots of news about this. The initial announcement of Reddit's decision emphasized the fact that, you know, uh, there were lots of large language models that were using Reddit data to train their models um, but as the debate go- has gone on it's pretty clear that a big part of this is actually is that the company has just gotten sick of third-party app developers making profits while reddit doesn't so Alex you know we predicted that uh, other companies would draft in musk's wake on reducing transparency when musk himself you know in this we've talked about this a lot uh, has turned off access to the API at Twitter I don't know if we could have predicted but maybe we should have that CEOs would do it with so much open for for Musk's uh, decision making and the way that he has been handling this whole thing, because <laughs> Steve Huffman, Reddit CEO, uh, has been like openly um, adoring of, of Musk uh, in some interviews this week, uh, saying that you know he's really learned a lot about the way that Musk has taken over Twitter, and that long story short, uh, my takeaway is reaffirming that we can build a really good business in this space at our scale. So, did you see this one coming? <laughs>
1: I, I'm a, I'm a little surprised because you, yes, I as you and I have talked about all the time, Musk is creating the incentive structure for people to follow him and and kind of permission for them to do so. But if you look at the results of Twitter, it's been a disaster, right? Like, and and in this case, the you know trying to charge your APIs has in no way made up for the revenue shortfall they have in other areas. And so, to to specifically cite, like, I want our business to be as good as as Twitter's is just like not the biggest goal in capitalism. I think I, you know, it's not something I'd want to hear from most public. Uh, companies. Um, but that is what's driving this, is that uh, Reddit wants to IPO. They've taken a bunch of money in private investment over the years they are still not profitable like reddit is a really cool website i really like it it's a great site it's a terrible business um, and they've never you know they, they make twitter look good from a from an execution perspective on from a revenue perspective and i think reddit has demonstrated over and over again how hard it is actually to monetize attention and how you if you want to be profitable in the space you got to be like a tiktok or a, a a meta where you have a team that's just like incredibly aggressive in figuring out ways to to monetize and driving growth and driving engagement. So in this case, because of that desire to have some revenue bumps before the IPO, Reddit's looking for ways to do that. You know, they make most of their money by selling ads. And so one, they'll be adding more revenue from the API. I think there's a legitimate argument that they don't like the fact that OpenAI, for example, has trained all of GPT on Reddit. And so that, you know, all of this work that Reddit has done to create these communities is being used for free by a number of different large language model vendors, but they didn't have to blow up the third-party apps. And it's clear now that they have not adjusted in any like significant way that the goal was to blow up the third-party apps. And I think partially because those third-party apps often don't sell ads, some of them actually sell their own ads. And so like, I think there is some legitimate argument here for Reddit is like, if you it is expensive to run these services. It is not cheap to do it. And people talk about like yes, the labor is mostly in the content creation and that comes from individual users and that's totally true. But it is not it is not a free thing to have tens or hundreds of thousands of servers around the globe to maintain those things to write the software. And while, you know, some moderation is done centrally reddit still has to have a pretty significant trust and safety team so there is a big operational component here that can operate in lots of different languages and needs the technical backing to be able to backstop the fact that they've got bad subreddits and so if you you have a bad subreddit that means the moderators are not somebody you can trust so i'm a little more i think i'm a little more on reddit side on this than some other folks that being said they've mismanaged it incredibly right just the way they've interacted with the the their user base, the way they've interacted with moderators, it's just an incredible own goal and will eventually be a Harvard business case study and like how not to roll out a change like this
0: right yeah so uh, yeah exactly a, a case study in in corporate comms that's been a bit of a dumpster fire it's also you know a super interesting study in like social media governance because there's a distinctive feature about reddit of course which is you're right that there's a you know a centralized trust and safety uh, team but it's also much more decentralized in the sense that it you know relies on a lot more community moderation with its subreddits which is what has empowered these moderators to you know do the blackout and and, and go private a, a study um, by some computer scientists out of North Western University last year um, found that you know based on sort of average pay rates, moderators do basically a minimum of three point four million dollars per year in unpaid labor, maintaining the site and and you know writing the rules, enforcing the rules, uh, which is you know roughly equivalent to two point eight percent of Reddit's 2019 revenue. So you know not an insubstantial amount of work is is done. It's these moderators that that often uh, you know create the communities and, and maintain the site, and it's been interesting to watch the dynamics between. Steve Huffman and these moderators as like who is trying to invoke the will of the people and the de- demos and and the uh, the, the sort of d- democratic bona fides. Um, you know, Huffman is really trying to seize the, you know the, the the mantle as the representative of like the silent majority. He told NBC NBC News uh, in an interview that the moderators are the landed gentry, that the people who just got there first get to stay there and pass it down to their descendants, and that's not democratic. And so, just coincidentally, this is a time where he's announcing that he was going to change a bunch of rules. To uh, how you get rid of moderators uh, on, on subreddits um, so that they can be voted out by people. Uh, that, what a quinky dink.
1: Them. This is a great week to roll that out. Yeah. <laughs> How's
0: that for timing? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's been super interesting uh, to see how people are trying to invoke, you know, democratic norms and I guess a, a cost here that we're seeing of decentralized content moderation, where if you rely on your community to do moderation, uh, you can't sort of only give them say when and how it's convenient to you uh, that they're going to have, you know, deep investment and in, in emotional investment and other kinds of ideas about how the site should be run. So I think that's been fascinating.
1: Yeah. You know, the two sites that have always been, whenever there's any kind of problems in trust and safety, people bring up two sites as the example of like, you don't need to have trust and safety teams. Look at Wikipedia and Reddit, which is one, not true, in that both the Wikimedia Foundation and Reddit have kind of backstop trust and safety teams whose job it is to come up with the base policy and the base enforcement, right? You're not allowed to run a child exploitation subreddit, right? And in fact, there's a bunch of subreddits you're not allowed anyway. They, they've they've really raised the bar over the last five, six years, what I think was appropriate because they got into a place where a bunch of subreddits were really, really nasty and it was causing real risk for, for Reddit. So one, it never got rid of that. I think there is a real positive of allowing people to have, you know, over that baseline, different kinds of standards in different communities. You're like, in this place, people are kind of mean to each other and they're making fun of each other and that's what you expect when you come here. In this place, we're being very frank in our exchange of views on certain topics and that means that stuff that you might consider hate speech or slur somewhere else will be accepted here and you don't have to be part of that community if you don't want. You know, they're... Uh, communities where stuff that you and I would consider disinformation is being freely spread. And that's like something you can allow right in, in this situation. But the flip side is, is when you allow these people to take that kind of ownership, he's not totally wrong in that you, you know, both Wikipedia and Reddit creates a little bit of like these subreddit tyrants, right? Uh, Just like with Wikipedia, the people who just dedicate their lives to Wikipedia, create all these crazy rules that make it impossible for anybody new to come in and impossible to fix anything. I keep on running into this that like uh, whenever I'm in a controversial situation you get like anonymous people editing my my Wikipedia page and then you know the rules are that I can't tell ask people to fix it but like random people from random IP addresses are allowed to like put stuff that's not true in there and you know it's because they've built this whole kind of scaffolding of unless you're one of the chosen you're, you're, you're not allowed to have any kind of say of what goes in there even if like stuff's wrong. and defamatory honestly so it's just like the reality of when people are always like look at reddit and wikipedia this is the flip side is like you give people are giving you their labor and as a flip side they they believe they have some ownership and uh there's a it's difficult to adjudicate then how do you reduce that and what kind of control do they have outside of the things that you have specifically said they never told subreddit moderators that you can control our api policy that was never something reddit promised them so it's not like reddit is rolling back the powers that you get as a moderator, it is a completely different business decision that impacts them, but for which they had no official power. And, and it's, it's just a fascinating example of empowering those people that there are all kinds of benefits you can get, but in the end they might not stay within their lane of the things in which you have explicitly granted them some kind of influence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have to say though, allowing moderators to be easily voted out by you know a, a tyranny of the majority, um, if they start making moderation decisions that that they that that you know people in a forum don't like, that also sounds like a recipe for disaster. Like I yeah. don't know exactly what the new rules are going to be, but this is you know it's a very easy uh, it, it, you know part of the role of a moderator is to you know be a bit of a buzzkill and enforce rules sometimes in a way that is going to upset people.
1: Well, and the challenge of Reddit is that you have subreddits that hate each other and effectively raid each other. So if you create a mechanism by which if you fly blood into another subreddit and you are now the majority of people and there's no kind of standard of whether or not you've been part of it or anything like that then yes you're going to end up with these like trolling activities where you're like oh the knitting subreddit is now a nazi subreddit because we decided that we're going to take over r slash knitting and we're going to bring all of our friends and then replace them uh with our neo-nazi uh moderators and so i i am a, i i do think that that is a very risky direction to go yes
0: yeah, poor grandma. Anyway, I'm sure Huffman has... <laughs> what happened to my knitting subreddit? Exactly. I'll just pick up this pattern and knit it. Oh, my God, what is this? Uh, this um, pattern? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Anyway, I'm sure Huffman has thought through all of these difficult issues and is not at all just uh, rolling this out uh, in a, in a pick of brain. Oh, yeah, this um, thing
1: seems very well planned. It's not like yeah, they're just exactly. having an emergency meeting every <laughs> afternoon and then completely pivoting.
0: It's, it's, it's
1: like it is not... Uh, d- d- to be frank, I don't think Huffman's gonna survive this. Cause I, I think like this is not the kind of thing that investors are gonna to wanna to see as oh boy, this person knows what they're doing. Right. Like whether or not you agree with the original goal here, just the way it's been rolled out and the way they've kind of they've really floundered, it does not bode well for the leadership team.
0: I'm so like glad to hear you say that because it's baffling to me. You know, you're taking your inspiration from Musk in both your sort of the substance and form of your communications around this issue, but there's a really big difference, uh, which is that Musk cannot be dethroned, um, and right. is uh, and can you know get away with this because of the situation. Um, and
1: again, like you're telling, like Musk has lost two thirds of the value of Twitter, according to like I think it was Fidelity. They had to mark to market, uh, their 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 bonds or their loans, and so like that's a crazy thing to put in like your prospectus in your S one. We want to IPO and lose two thirds of your money. That's effectively what you're saying. If you're trying to copy Twitter.
0: Right. And our CEO is taking inspiration from this guy, where we have a special sound effect to introduce uh, the the segment about his business decisions. The sounds of inspiring leadership. So over in the Twitter corner uh, this week, Linda Yaccarino, the new CEO, published her first memo to employees and talking about how Twitter is on a mission to become the world's most accurate real-time information source, which uh, is news to me. I didn't realize it was on that mission, um, given... Uh, its latest policies and, and and practices, but it's it's good to hear. Good luck, Linda. At exactly sort of the same time that she's writing out this memo, uh, Musk is tweeting about wanting modern day Roman dictators uh, who are known for uh, extremely violent takeovers. So it's uh, it's good good brand right. safety.
1: Not just any Roman dictators, right? So he's not talking about like one of you know Augustus or Julius or somebody who has like a reasonable track record, even if they were terrible. It's Sola who is a straight. I mean, one of the worst figures in all of Roman history, which of course he knows because he linked to the Britannica article. And you can read through all the horrible things he did. So anyway, it was he's basically saying he's giving about democracy, right? Was was what that twit tweet meant. And so while people were, you know, thought it was kind of just funny for him to 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 do that, like it's It's a pretty aggressive indication that he does not want to operate within a democratic principles, right? And and it it is actually, I think, another sad indication of a significant portion of our polity deciding that democracy is not the way forward. That if they can't crush their enemies completely, then it is not worthwhile to operate within a democratic system. And I find that very disturbing from a person who owns and controls such an important information platform
0: right so while Linda's saying uh, we're trying to be the world's most accurate real-time information source and musk is tweeting about solar and and uh, giving up on democracy uh, Jack Dorsey confirms what everyone already knew basically but it was uh, it was you know important to get it on the record which is that during his time as CEO uh, India threatened to shut down Twitter if it didn't take down certain posts critical of the government and this is something that we've covered extensively on this podcast the the, the fight between Twitter and India and in the increasing pressure that India India is putting on, on Twitter to make it less accurate in terms of information by taking down, uh, you know, uh, information critical of the of the government. And in response, an, an Indian government official said that Twitter under Dorsey and his team had repeatedly violated Indian law, but that coincidentally, and it didn't name Musk this this statement, but said that Twitter had now been in compliance with Indian law uh, since June 2022. So uh, the problems that, that caused Dorsey to get such threats uh, no longer seem to be arising. So uh, dispiriting, but again, not that surprising.
1: Yeah, it is But good luck, Linda.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's right. All right. And so uh, that takes us to um, the controversy du jour, which, of course, somehow Musk is also a part of. Because
1: he inserts himself in everything, right? He's like, oh, somebody's in trouble somewhere. How can I be part of this? Right. (laughs) How How can I jump into it? (laughs)
0: Exactly. So this is uh, Joe Rogan and Spotify uh, is the thing that's getting a lot of attention today. Uh, Joe Rogan had RFK Jr. on his show in the last few days, and it was you know a a masterpiece of misinformation and false claims and bad medical, uh, just plain out wrong information. um, Which we're not going to go through because it's not you know important to our part of this. But there have been plenty of people on Twitter uh, and elsewhere uh, debunking all of these claims. So this show goes on and Spotify basically has done uh, nothing in response. Motherboard wrote about this, wrote an article about this. And when a microbiology professor tweeted it out, this uh, critical Motherboard article, uh, Joe Rogan has challenged the uh, professor to a debate, which is, uh, you know, exactly the way that we want to settle all of these. Well, to be clear,
1: he said he, he wanted him to debate RFK.
0: Right, right, right. On his yeah. show, For I unlimited,
1: unlimited time. He's like, uh, yeah, if you're one, if you're on, my, I mean, which is a great thing to say if, like, Hey, I'd love for you to come, and he said for an unlimited time. or Like, what does it gonna be, seven hours or eight hours of debate? You're not going to convince RFK Jr. of anything, right? Like, so you know, there's no winning against a guy like that. But yeah, it, it was anyway. Debate me, yeah. Come, I, I will. I will have the ring in which you gladiators fight, and we'll make the money. You know, I will toss the popcorn in and toss in the blood and take. Take all the money from the spectators uh, is not a bad offer to make. Like it totally makes logical sense for him to want to be that guy,
0: right? So yeah, in in all of your studying of of mis- and disinformation on social media, Alex, do you think that it could have been solved much more easily if we just had uh, you know professors debating uh, random podcasters and politicians? Do you think that would have got us somewhere?
1: Oh uh, god. Okay. So I mean, there's so many layers to this one, right? I I don't want to get into the anti-vax stuff too much. I, I think there are legitimate complaints about how vaccine information has been handled specifically around the COVID vaccines. And a number of projects, including ours, were specifically the goal was, let's understand how do people come to grips with something so important in real time, right? And it, you know, our, our friend Zeynep tufeki I think, has written a lot of good stuff about there were claims and counterclaims and things are really confusing during COVID because we watched the science develop in real time. But there's these anti-vaxxers who, this is not about COVID. This is not about real time. They, they are making arguments uh, against vaccines for which there are mountains and mountains of scientific evidence. And whatever happens in real time just makes them believe that they were right, right? Like that it, it justifies everything they've done. And so one, like the, the I think, reasonable reaction to COVID restrictions and such, which have become politicized. The fact that that has opened the door for the traditional anti-vaxxers, the folks who don't want the basic vaccines that are necessary to send your kids to school because they want you know, kids to die of diseases like Little House on a Prairie or something, right? Like, oh, I'd love my kid to have measles, right? Like mumps. Uh, that sounds fantastic, right? The fact that, like, it has opened the door for those people is really an incredibly sad thing, right? And and we see, like, this in quantitative data, that support for traditional vaccination is actually dropped in a number of political groups uh, because of the, of this fight. Um, in this case, specifically, I don't see this as a content moderation issue, it's not a content moderation issue because Joe Rogan is not just like a user-generated content poster on a platform. Spotify pays him $100 million to bring his show uniquely to their platform. The relationship between Spotify and Joe Rogan is the same relationship as Netflix and the actors that are in their movies. Between Fox News and Tucker Carlson, it used to be, right? And between CNN and all their on-air talent and NBC and and everybody who's on MSNBC, that is the relationship. They are just paying a person to create content that they then sell ads against, or the in subscriptions. They sell straight up subscriptions. Pay us money to get this content. To me, they are absolutely a hundred percent morally responsible for everything he says. They're just straight up paying them. So I don't see as a content moderation issue. I don't see as a Section two thirty issue. This is just Spotify has decided that they're going to be a platform that carries this kind of stuff, and whether there's actually any civil liability. Doesn't sound like there is. I I, I don't think you think there is. What do you think, law professor?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is, you know, Tricky and, and possibly untested. Of course, Spotify will say Section Two Thirty protects it, just like it protects any other platform with content on its site. Now, Section Two Thirty only protects websites uh, for the content provided by other people, uh, content um, produced by other people on their on their sites. And so, you know, the, the argument would be that by entering into this agreement, um, this is no longer just Joe Rogan's content, but that uh, Spotify is some sort of co-producer in in the production of that content uh, for all of the reasons that you've said. Now, I don't know actually what the outcome would be there, but we talked a lot about uh, how the Supreme Court w- was interested in revenue-sharing ways of piercing Section 230 in the Gonzalez and, and Tumna cases that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that that was something that they kept bringing up as a way that we might see uh, a way through Section 230. So yeah. I, I don't know the actual the legal outcome in this particular case, and I think it would depend a lot also on potentially the terms of the agreement, which we haven't seen. It's all private. I don't know. But I mean, for, for all of the reasons that you said, morally, uh, absolutely. It's a completely different situation to someone just posting content on a, on a platform without um, without any relationship with that platform uh, in, in a more extensive
1: way. I mean, if that's a valid legal defense, then Fox should have tried it in Dominion of like, oh, we're just a platform upon which Tucker Carlson has a TV show, right? <laughs> like right. <laughs> uh, But because, there, I mean, other than the internet format-
0: exceptionalism, I mean, sadly.
1: Uh... Yeah, internet exceptional. except Fox is online. I mean, like if you, if they, if Tucker Carlson's show was only on Fox Nation- right? Like if it never hit cable, that just seems like a bizarre, I mean, one, it's a a bizarre reason to treat differently. And I don't think legally it would have been treated differently, right? Like I think they would be held at just as responsible. Anyway, I I don't think there's actual liability here, but people should be mad at Spotify and their defense should not be, we allow lots of different users. like, you're straight up paying this guy. You are making a ton of money off of having him exclusively on your platform. This is what you chose to have. And you know, whether you like the content or not, this is Spotify's choice. Right. And and I think people need to vote with their wallet here. Right. Just like people, if you don't want to watch Fox news then you don't watch Fox news, if you don't like that, Spotify just wants to pay for RFK junior to be up there and gives Joe Rogan a lot of money uh, to, to let, RFK Jr. just say things that aren't true, then you should not have a Spotify subscription. Sorry. It's just like, it's a reasonable, (laughs) this is not a platform issue. It is not a content moderation issue.
0: Yeah, and if all of this sounds a little bit familiar, it's because we went through it. I think only you know a, a couple of years ago uh, around Joe Rogan specifically and Spotify because he was you know in the news for making a whole bunch of misinformation claims at the time and discouraging people from getting vaccines. And Spotify basically acknowledged some of its uh, responsibility by after that controversy introducing a uh, COVID misinformation policy. And the it it a Spotify p- spokesperson pointed to that policy um, in response to comments for from Motherboard. And their defense was that uh, this episode didn't get taken down because although Rogan and Kennedy suggested during their conversation that COVID vaccines are ineffective um, and injuring and killing large numbers of people, they didn't explicitly say that those vaccines were designed to, to, to create that outcome. And so it didn't uh, fall short of their policy, which is, ah, uh, okay. you know, yeah, exactly. Great loophole there.
1: And what kind of policies, like, what are you trying to, if you're trying to protect people, if you believe that you're going to have a policy to protect people, then it should be about... Are, are you giving people incorrect information that leads them to make the wrong decision? It is not whether you say what the purpose of like the vaccine, like you're saying, oh, it kills you, but it wasn't intentional. It doesn't change the outcome of, of what decisions people make. It's it's just kind of a, it's such a bizarre uh, bizarrely written policy if that's actually what they believe other than just trying to backfill whatever, you know, more likely it's, they've made a huge investment. They probably do not have contractual terms that really allow them to have control over this content. They made a pretty crazy decision uh, to give him money and almost, any circumstances. And so I think that's a much more likely than this actually being a policy that's being applied correctly.
0: Right. Musk's part of this is that after the um, Baylor professor was challenged to the debate by Rogan, Rogan also proposed a $100,000 donation uh, to the charity of Hotez, Professor Hotez's choosing, if he agreed. Uh, Musk said that Hotez hated charity by not accepting the debate um, and, of course, elevated this whole thing. Um, And then, you know, in a way that it takes a dark turn. I mean, this is all. Sort of, uh, sort of funny, but also really not, because there's a lot of harm created by this. And in you know specifically, uh, the professor tweeted that he's been you know now stalked in front of his house um, by a couple of anti-vaxxers who have turned up taunting him to debate RFK Jr. So um, you know it's, this is not the kind of thing that a, a microbiology professor should have to deal with. But thank you, Elon Musk, for creating that situation.
1: Yeah. So congrats, Spotify. Like if. If you end up with violence between folks, right? Texas is not a state where you should really show up on somebody's front lawn uninvited. It's not a state where it is. Yeah, you know, the the homeowner has lots of options for with which they can respond to that, uh, for which they will not be punished very aggressively. So if somebody gets seriously hurt or killed during this, then Spotify is not going to feel so great of saying that. Oh, it's just a Section two thirty issue. I mean, that's just it. That's clearly not going to hold up in that
0: situation. Right. Okay. So in other uh, COVID nineteen misinformation. Uh, content moderation news uh, over to Meta, which this week published its responses to the Oversight Board's recommendation about its COVID-19 misinformation policies. Now, we talked about the Oversight Board's uh, decision in this case um, a couple of months ago. Um, So this is all a complete mess. Meta referred the case to the board uh, and the board took it in July 2022, so nearly a year ago. The board didn't... announced its decision until April 2023, which is nine months later. Uh, we talked about it at the time, but the board's decision after this nine months was basically a giant shruggy emoji to say, wow, COVID misinformation, that's really tough. Uh, you should assemble some experts and do a lot of consulting to try and work out what to do. Um, and after this nine months, and you know, this multi-million dollar board set up came down with this decision, just two weeks later, the WHO announced that it had formally lifted its uh, designation of the global emergency in the pandemic. And Meta has said, well, given that WHO announcement and recategorization of COVID, we no longer want to enforce our uh, global COVID-19 misinformation policy. Uh, and so we're doing a reassessment. So it's all kind of a bit of a moot point anyway, given how long the board took to, to take its decision. So the current situation is that Meta is saying that it's going to roll back. It's uh, its um, COVID-19 misinformation and it's going to go on a country by country basis. And so in those countries where they still have a public emergency declared, they will use Um, escalation enforcement approach uh, for COVID-19 when people flag it. There is no list of the countries that Meta is, you know, proposing to do this in yet. Uh, So I'm not exactly clear on what the timeline is or how it's going to be implemented or what, you know, whether we're going to have much visibility or transparency around this. But basically, as a result of this extensive uh, process, um, where we end up is sort of in a very haphazard, opaque situation at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, I continue to not really understand what the the oversight board is for, right? Like, this is clearly
0: exactly
1: why you pay all these people is to is to consult with them during this. I think part of it is going back to this original idea of treating them like court cases, where instead of treating the oversight board as more of an advisory board, where they're deeply involved in the discussions, the fact that you toss something to them, give them evidence, and then you wait a year for you know something to be the tablets to come down off the mountain and and, to, and you know to be boomed out in the in a a voice from a burning bush you know, maybe it's better to have like an ongoing engagement because otherwise you end up with situations like this, you know, Meta like changing their policy, it, the, the structure of COVID's impact on people has changed. Like it is reasonable to say we're not in the middle of the deepest part of the the, the risk. I think also that kind of initial period of, uh, you know, of, of what we were just talking about, what Zeynep talks about, of like the creation of knowledge of what is up with COVID, what's up with the vaccines and stuff, we're past that. And so now there's still debates, but There's a lot of evidence out there, and so you might want to change what your policies look like, but why have something that's completely disconnected from what the oversight board does, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah.
0: So I completely agree with that, that I think this judicialized model is not an appropriate way of thinking about this. Um, I guess what Meta gets from it is it can announce this new country by country designation and say, and we're doing this consistent with our oversight board. Because the oversight board had said, you know, a global policy doesn't make sense in this circumstance where different countries are having different experiences. So technically Meta's right, that at a very high level, it is just doing kind of what the oversight board told it to do. And it gets to say that, which, you know, in, in a, you know, 800 word Washington Post article which doesn't really delve into how this process played out and what exactly happened looks better I guess than like Twitter for example which just sort of silently stopped enforcing its COVID-19 policy and it kind of maybe looks a little bit more legitimate and makes you know Zuckerberg and Meta look good for doing it through this process rather than more you know arbitrarily but at the end of the day I'm not sure in substance how how different it really is and you know in other news uh, the board also released its 2022 annual report in the last week or so uh, in which it said that it had received nearly 1.3 million appeals over over the 22 uh, 2022 period uh, and during that period it published 12 decisions so not only do the cases take forever so they're almost there yeah, they're that's almost right. <laughs> <laughs> one a month
1: <laughs> one, right 1,299,988 left to to get through to get through the that's background.
0: right it's it, it'll be fine uh just a, just a few weekends and you'll get there um i feel a little bit like the person that's complaining that the food is bad and the portions are too small um but still i do think that uh that you know it's kind of ridiculous to only publish 12 decisions decisions over a 12 month period
1: well, i mean the ridiculous part was to advertise we're here for individual appeals right. that was that was never the job of the oversight board. The job was for the thing we were just talking about. Like, hey, there's a big argument over what COVID policy should be. Then let's have a big Supreme Court-like process by which you argue over it. It would be better if that wasn't transparent. It would be better if there, you had individual steps. But at least that makes sense. Of them to be looking at like a random person got their their Facebook post take down and taken down and they're going to appeal it. That's just ridiculous, right? Like that never, you could never structure any kind of you know body like this to, to handle that. Like that's gonna have to be, you have policies in place that are then enforced by thousands or tens of thousands of operational people and AI and all kinds of automation to, to be anywhere close to that volume. Right.
0: Yeah. And I mean, to be fair to them, when they take these cases, those 12 decisions, they do try and push for like systemic uh, changes. They aren't really focused on the individual piece of content in question. But at the same time, you can't, cannot do that, you know, once a month sort of chiming in and sort of saying, hey, think about it harder. Um, anyway, right. it's.
1: But like, so I, I feel like th- that whole thing comes from like the over American lawyerization of the oversight board because it's all about like having standing in court, right? That like you had to have a, a Content taken down to quote unquote have standing to be in front of the oversight board. Where what should the COVID disinformation policy be is not something that you need like an individual person to appeal to know, wow, this is important, right? Like what your policy should be in the 2024 election is something that clearly the oversight board should be engaging with the company on whether or not somebody's appealing something. And, 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 but I, I see that as like the problem is, is that every single person involved was standing this thing up had a JD from an American law school, and therefore, like all civil procedure is 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 what infected kind of the thought process for setting up something that could have been really unique and useful. Yeah.
0: I, I, so I can't help myself. I've, I've been biting my tongue. But the last sort of five minutes or so of conversation, we have been recreating kind of my argument in an article, Content Moderation is Systems Thinking, where I basically argue exactly that, that like uh, lawyers and especially American lawyers, when you see a speech dispute, you think ah uh, court case, you need like a plaintiff and a rule and a judge. And, and you think, uh, especially with, with speech and the First Amendment, you think you have to decide on these individualistic rights terms. And that that's just a, yeah. an inappropriate analogy when you're talking about the kind of scale and, and all of the sort of trade-offs that are involved in content moderation, which make it a differently, completely different kind of problem.
1: Gosh, did you publish that anywhere,
0: yeah. Evelyn? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, you can Google it. It, it, it comes up. Um, <laughs> I think it's a
1: law review for an inferior school in Boston. <laughs> That's right.
0: Yeah. Somewhere in Boston. Uh, um, so thanks for the plug. All right. So speaking of law and lawyers, let's head to the legal corner. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so uh, just a few quick updates from the states, which are really sort of buzzing with activity, basically, in uh, in regulating platforms. And I'd even missed a couple of these. So last week, Texas signed into law a bill uh, requiring kids under 18 um, before to get parental consent before joining a wide variety of social media sites. Um, kudos to The Verge for covering this, because it was barely covered in uh, mainstream press. I only found it when I was looking for information on a Louisiana bill um, that had passed a few weeks ago that would do... the the same thing. Um, But the Texas Act is is, uh, broader. So the the Louisiana bill uh, only uh, has been sent to the governor for signature and would only require, um, it's a pretty simple bill, just requiring parental consent for minors to to have a social media account. But the Texas bill has all of these other provisions around requiring platforms to prevent minors from seeing, uh, quote unquote, harmful material, uh, which is defined not, you know, uh, completely at large, but pretty broadly uh, to include a whole bunch of stuff, you know, sexual material, etc. And it requires platforms to use filtering technology and hash sharing technology and all of these other sort of ill-defined terms um, that are just thrown into this act to prevent minors from seeing this kind of thing. So it's a pretty, um, uh, you know, it's a pretty expansive bill. um, And it is unsurprisingly has attracted the attention of the industry group NetChoice, which said that the law violates the First Amendment many times over. And so (laughs) they haven't challenged it yet as far as I can can, I can see, but I um, I doubt a, a challenge will be far off. You know, it can add it to the net choice uh, oeuvre of, of cases that they're bringing.
1: Yeah, they're really racking it up. It's going to be net choice versus every attorney general, right? Like in their professional capacity in the United States. I guess these states have just decided that if yeah, you know, if there's no downside to having a signaling bill because you're never going to actually have any consequences because whatever you do is immediately going to be stayed by a federal judge, then you might as well just do it. Uh, so you can say that you're, you're holding them accountable and, you know, keeping families safe or keeping kids safe or giving parents choice or whatever it is that you say your slogan is um, that that's going to become the the standard thing. Unfortunately, I think if, if you have a, if you have 45 of these bills, one of them will actually survive. Right. Um, And then we're going to end up with all these crazy consequences, like one state in which you have to show ID to get an internet account or something. Um, So it will be, I mean, it's a huge waste of money for all the litigation that's happening. And, you know, just kind of a completely ridiculous way. But I I understand the motivation of all these governors and uh, state legislatures uh, to try to at least put their fingerprint on it so that they have something to advertise.
0: Yeah, right. It's like a DDoS attack of state legislation of terrible ideas and like one's going to one's going to get through. I've been joking that, you know, net cho- uh, teaching first amendment in, you know, 5 or 6 years, it's just going to be teaching the net choice cases 1 through 7 because they're going to include all of our uh, free speech principles for a digital age as as uh, net choice goes around challenging all of these bills, including there's another one in Florida uh, that was signed into law by Governor Ron DeSantis this week, the Florida Digital Bill of Rights and Alex, it's exactly as you say, like this is political posturing and signaling. It includes some basic consumer rights and privacy rights, um, but it only applies to the largest tech platforms and also includes a couple of other things like prohibiting government officials uh, in the state from making requests to social media platforms to remove content uh, and also requiring search engines to say if their search results are Influenced by political partisanship or political ideology, the, the number one issue um, in content moderation and online safety these days, for sure. So, yes, when you've got a political campaign going these days, the, the, the first step is to announce some sort of platform regulation bill.
1: Well, so maybe you can uh, get famous uh, by writing the first restatement of the Net Choice Cases. Uh, It'll be the have-to-be book on uh, the shelf of every First Amendment lawyer in in 2037.
0: Excellent. That is my tenure plan. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, The first restatement of the Net (laughs) Choice Cases. And that brings us to the end of our uh, program today. It's been your weekly moderated content update. This show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode wouldn't be possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and it's produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. Special thanks also to Justin Fu and Rob Huffman.